Classic English Literature Podcast. Today, episode 12, Beaten for a Book, Chaucer's Wife of Bath. I've noticed recently an increasingly common rhetorical tick in conversations and in the media. I hear it most often in those man or woman on the street segments in news broadcasts or in interviews. Whenever someone is asked a question about some current issue or event, they frequently begin their response with something like, well, speaking as a mother, or speaking as a doctor, or some other assertion that their position or occupation confers on what will follow a certain authority, a trustworthiness. Now, on the editorial pages of newspapers and magazines, too, I increasingly find clickbait headlines such as, I'm a personal trainer, here's the truth about free weights. In rhetoric, this is called an ethos appeal, using your own expertise and character to lend credibility to your point of view. Yet while the ethos appeal dates at least back to Aristotle, it is only comparatively recently that we have accepted it as the basis for argumentation among the hoi polloi. For most of history, and especially here as we are in late medieval Europe, Authority resided solely in the established texts of antiquity and church teaching. Writing still had, even in the late Middle Ages, quite a talismanic power. One's personal, first-hand, empirical experience counted for very little when compared to the pronouncements of written authority. And this is what makes Chaucer's Alison, the wife of Bath, such a marvelously fascinating character— Her prologue and tale are arguments asserting the primacy of personal experience over established authority. And put into the mouth of a woman, it's rather punk rock when you consider it. Let's have a look at her verse portrait in the Canterbury Tales' general prologue. Quote, A worthy woman from beside Bath City was with us, somewhat deaf, which was a pity, In making cloth she showed so great a bent she bettered those of Eep and of Ghent, In all the parish, not a dame dared stir towards the altar steps in front of her. And if indeed they did, so wrath was she as to be quite put out of charity. Her kerchiefs were of finely woven ground. I dared have sworn they weighed a good ten pound, the ones she wore on Sunday on her head. Her hose were of the finest scarlet red and gartered tight. Her shoes were soft and new. Bold was her face, handsome and red in hue. A worthy woman all her life. What's more, she'd had five husbands all at the church door, apart from other company in youth. No need just now to speak of that, forsooth. And she had thrice been to Jerusalem, seen many strange rivers and passed over them. She'd been to Rome and also to Boulogne, St. James of Compostela and Cologne, and she was skilled in wandering by the way. She had gap teeth, set widely, truth to say. Easily, on an ambling horse she sat, well wimpled up, and on her head a hat as broad as is a buckler or a shield. She had a flowing mantle that concealed large hips. Her heels spurred sharply under that. 
In company, she liked to laugh and chat and knew the remedies for love's mischances and art in which she knew the oldest dances. So Chaucer Pilgrim describes a rather wealthy and vivacious woman of middle years who was also a little deaf, sadly, with extravagant clothing and an expansive ego. She's a member of that rising middle class in post-plague England. She's a cloth maker and seemingly a very successful one. Her wares surpassed those made in Northern Europe, renowned textile areas at the time, though some scholars see this as an empty boast that West English textiles were woefully substandard. Either way, she can afford scarlet cloth herself, which is very expensive to produce, and she wears new shoes and ten pounds of kerchiefs, a huge hat, fashionably flamboyant to say the least. And she's done a fair bit of traveling, Jerusalem three times, and other famous pilgrimage sites like Rome and Compostela. A trip to the Holy Land back in the 14th century could take upwards of a year, and this woman has had the money to go several times. You've come a long way, baby. Of course, the thing most people notice about her is the fact that she has been five times married, not to mention several lovers, Chaucer Pilgrim discreetly implies, punning on wandering by the way as both an experienced traveler and a promiscuous woman. Once we note that, details like her scarlet red hosiery, her bold red face, her large hips, and gap teeth point to her energetic sexuality. Yes, yes, gap teeth was a medieval shorthand for sexy. Curious. Yeah, it worked for Lauren Hutton back in the 70s. And it's sex and marriage that are the core of her prologue and tale. When it's her turn to speak, she, like the partner, offers a lengthy literary confession justifying her life. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. She begins, Experience, though no authority were in this world, were good enough for me to speak of woe that is in all marriage. For masters, since I was twelve years of age, thanks be to God who is for I alive. Of husbands at church door have I had five, for men so many times have wedded me, and all were worthy men in their degree. It's a declaration of war right from the start. She says that, because she has been married five times since the age of twelve, that she has more credibility to speak of marriage than do all the established authorities of the church who are entirely male, entirely celibate. But they do have fabulous gowns. Seems obvious to us, perhaps, but it's a remarkable assertion in 1380. And again, it's from the mouth of a woman who would usually be regarded as without any credibility at the time. She proceeds to cite biblical evidence, including Jesus' presence at the wedding of Cana, his conversation with the Samaritan woman by the well, and the Genesis injunction that, quote, God bade us all to wax and multiply, that kindly text I well can understand. Note that she uses the word text. She's explicitly contending on traditional authoritative, that is to say written, grounds. She gilds the lily by pointing out King Solomon's exhaustive, and frankly, it seems to me exhausting, harem. 
The first part of her speech includes deconstructing the examples of the patriarchs, especially Abraham and Jacob. Then she turns to the admonitions of St. Paul. I must note, however, that she often misquotes or misrepresents some of her texts, leading to speculation that she is illiterate and only repeating what she has imperfectly remembered, or that maybe whatever priests or monks have taught her have been mistaken in their understanding. Throughout her discourse, the wife also uses the language of a merchant, a middle-class businesswoman, to characterize the marital relationship. She draws an analogy between virgins in gold on one hand and wives in wood on the other, noting that both have their use in a noble household. Marital sex she refers to in terms of commerce and exchange, quote, a man must yield his wife her debt, and, quote, whenever he likes to come and pay his debt, and, quote, I'll have a husband yet who's both my debtor and slave. Remember that she is a wealthy cloth maker and business is her business. And here's an interesting point, though. We know her as the wife of Bath. Everyone else on the pilgrimage, Chaucer identifies by their profession, right? We've got a knight, a nun, a pardoner. Why is she not a weaver or a cloth maker? Why the wife? You can search the 1,300 lines of the wife's texts and not find any significant reference to her business. It's only mentioned in her verse portrait, but it doesn't play any important role anywhere else in her prologue or tale. So follow me on this one. For most of pre-modern European history, women had no legal or economic status. A woman was, in English law, sub verga virisui, means under the rod of her man. She was covered by the dominant man in her life, her father as a child and her husband as a wife, called femme convertit baron. Even widows were not given any legal recognition at this time. Yet, after the social disruptions occasioned by the Black Plague, widows were afforded the right to inherit property. This casts the middle section of the wife's prologue into quite a revealing light. To wit, the pardoner interrupts to say that he had intended to marry. Really, dude? Really? But she has convinced him otherwise. This prompts her to embark upon a recital of her first-hand experience of marriage. Quote, Those husbands that I had, three of them were good and two were bad. The three that I call good were rich and old. And there the farthing drops. These husbands are good because they are wealthy, old, and submissive. She can exploit their, shall we say, enthusiasm for a young wife. And when they perish of exhaustion, she inherits their wealth. So it seems that she is something of a professional wife. Her wealth seems to come from canny marriages, not necessarily quality textiles. She repeatedly insists that she has no interest in their lovemaking except to secure her mastery over them in all other matters. How she does so, however, many readers find puzzling. She behaves in the most self-consciously shrewish way she can, exploiting every vile misogynistic assumption ever held by a chauvinist. 
She gossips and nags and insults, accuses her husbands of fancying the neighbor's wife. She says, quote, A knowing wife, if she is worth her salt, can always prove her husband is at fault. Odd that she, at the beginning of her speech, seems to champion female freedom in the face of sexism. Yet she comfortably exploits patriarchal stereotypes for her own benefit. She continues to catalog the misogynistic attitudes held at her time, and at our own too, troublingly, you know, that women are too expensive, too risky, too superficial, too lecherous, too indulgent. And while these seem to be criticisms, she's also embodying them. She then gets to a description of her fourth husband, the first of the bad ones. He's a bit of a player, has an affair, and the jealousy drives Alice into distraction. So she fights fire with fire, flirting with all the pretty fellas, but never being disloyal, she insists. Then she notes that, quote, He died when I came back from Jordan's stream. Hmm. She pops off for a bit of a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and he shuffles off his mortal coil upon her return. Curious. There's an interesting little passage in which Allison, who in her flirting has met the young man who will become husband number five, and before her jaunt to the Holy Land, makes him an offer. Quote, And I suggested, were I ever free and made a widow, he should marry me. Well, well, well. Is it possible that she has husband number four murdered? Now, we never know. But it is such a fascinating notion, the stuff of soap opera and cheap erotic thrillers, you know. Like wealthy buxom widow has boy toy whack the husband. It's so deliciously tawdry. Then we hear about husband number five, and he is a special one. His name is Janikin, or Johnny, and he is, she says, quote, the one I took for love and not for wealth. The only husband with a name, and the only one for love, yet, quote, he was my worst, and many a blow he struck me still can ache along my row of ribs and will until my dying day. And the only one who was an abuser. He was a clerk at Oxford, so studying, perhaps, for holy orders, and would have read all the texts which Allison disputes earlier in her prologue. And every night, he read to her from a book he calls Theophrastus and Valerius, a work by an 11th century writer named Walter Mapp. The actual book is partly a satire on matrimony, and scornfully rehearses all the evil women of classical and Hebrew antiquity, a Book of Wicked Wives, Pasiphae, Delilah, Livia. Allison says, quote, Here's how I got a beating for a book. One night, Allison can take this mental abuse no longer and violently tears a page, or three pages, she doesn't recall precisely, from the book. He starts up and strikes her on the head, knocking her down and shattering her eardrum. And so that's how she becomes deaf. He panics, thinking he has killed her, and no doubt, remembering that medieval justice was often of the torturous kind, thinks of running away. But she wakes. Quote, oh, have you murdered me, you robber? You to get my land? Was that the game? Before I'm dead, I'll kiss you all the same. 
Oh, that's so romantic. She does love him despite it all. And he apologizes. Quote, My love, my dearest Allison, so help me God, I never again will hit you. And if I did, you asked for it. Forgive me. Not the best apology on record. Uh, It does rather confirm our suspicions that Johnny is a bit of a trouser snake. But Allison agrees, for when he leans down to kiss her, she fetches him a right clobber upside the head. By this means, she masters him, like she mastered her other husbands, and crows, quote, He gave the bridle into my hand, gave me government of house and land, of tongue and fist, indeed of all he'd got. Is this a happy ending? I mean, she wins, I guess. Gets what she has always been after. Sovereignty, freedom, self-determination, agency, whatever we would call it today. But I'm confused by her rather blithe acceptance of physical and mental abuse. As if it was a small price, or at least an affordable one, to pay. Dame Alice appears to us a quite conflicted or contradictory woman... You know, she vocally challenges the myopic misogyny of the Bible and St. Jerome and Ptolemy, all the books that have ever beaten her. But she also exploits that sexist culture to her own advantage. It's very curious. And curiouser still is the tale she tells. She returns us to romance, Arthurian romance, with a tale about a knight's quest to find out what women really want. She begins, When good King Arthur ruled in ancient days, a king that every Briton loves to praise, this was a land brimful of fairy folk. The elf queen and her courtiers joined and broke their elfin dance on many a green mead. Or so was the opinion once, I read, hundreds of years ago in days of yore, But now no one sees fairies anymore. Note both the fairy tale quality of this introduction, as well as its pronounced elegiac tone. You remember the elegies from the Anglo-Saxons, those poems that mourned the passing of a golden age. In a pre-Christian era, when Arthur ruled, Britain was an enchanted kingdom. But, she adds, in what at first seems an editorial digression, that enchantment has been destroyed by the arrival of Christianity, by the arrival of the church. What was once a land of magical forests and meadows is now civilized. Allison notes the, quote, halls, the chambers, kitchens, bowers, cities and boroughs, castles, courts and towers, thorps, barns and stables, outhouses and dairies, all blessed by wandering holy friars. So we get a classic contrast between the natural and the civil, and the latter drives out the former. But, she says, now maidens can freely wander because there are no mischievous fairies to harass them. A maid only need worry about that holy friar. Quote, There is no other incubus but he, so there is really no one else to hurt you, and he will do no more than take your virtue. Whoa, hang on. That was a heck of a swipe at the church. She says now that those pesky fairies are gone, you only need to worry about a monk 
whom she calls an incubus, which is a demon that takes physical form in order to have sex. And even he's not that much of a worry because he'll only rape you. Allison's tone turns quite darkly ironic here. She then begins the plot proper. Quote, Now, it so happened, I began to say, long, long ago in good King Arthur's day, there was a knight who was a lusty liver. One day, as he came riding from the river, he saw a maiden walking all forlorn ahead of him, alone as she was born, and of that maiden, spite of all she said, by very force he took her maidenhead. Right. A knight of Arthur rapes a country girl. Why? Because she was there. Justly, Arthur is outraged and calls for the knight's immediate death. Allison quips, quote, It seems then that the statutes took that view, implying that now, in the post-fairy Christian world, rape goes unpunished. But curiously, quote, the queen and other ladies, too, employed the king to exercise his grace and let them decide the knight's fate. Arthur acquiesces, giving his wife the power. Remember that. The queen gives Sir Rapist a year and a day to answer this question. Quote, what is the thing that women most desire? If he does, his life is spared. Um, the women of the court offer a way out for a brutal rapist, a rapist that the men of the court wanted dead. Curious. So he goes on the quest, hearing answers like, women want money, they want sex, they want clothes, they want to be widows, and so on and so on and so on, and none of these, of course, is the right answer. So as the year wanes, quote, he rode home in a dejected mood. Suddenly, at the margin of a wood, he saw a dance upon the leafy floor of four-and-twenty ladies, nay, and more. Eagerly he approached, in hope to learn some words of wisdom ere he should return. But lo, before he came to where they were, dancers and dance all vanished into air. There wasn't a living creature to be seen, save one old woman crouched upon the green. A fouler-looking creature, I suppose, could scarcely be imagined. She arose and said, Sir Knight, there is no way on from here. Tell me what you are looking for, my dear, for peradventure that were best for you. We old, old women know a thing or two. Ah, we're back in the sylvan world of fairy. Magical dances and wise crones. She says that she will tell the knight the answer he seeks, but he must grant whatever request she makes of him. He naturally agrees, hoping to avoid the axe. He returns to court, stands before the queen, and says, quote, A woman wants the self-same sovereignty over her husband as over her lover, and master him. He must not be above her. That is your greatest wish. Whether you kill or spare me, please yourself. I wait your will. Oh, ho, we have a winner. Yes, sovereignty mastery. That's what women want, like Allison had over her husbands, like the queen had over Arthur and the rapey knight. But what does the old crone want? 
Sir Rapist is in her thrall. She demands that she be nothing less than his wife, nay, his very love. Now who saw that coming? Oh, all of you? Oh, well, very well anticipated. Uh, The knight hesitates, not at first for her foul looks, but because she is not of the aristocracy. Quote, alas, that any of my race and station should ever make so foul a misalliance. Then we get what scholars call the pillow talk. The couple are married, but the knight refuses his conjugal duties. The old crone launches into a sermon, the theme of which, as we have seen before in romance literature, is that nobility is not determined by birth, but by character. Quote, Gentle is he that does a gentle deed, she reminds him, citing such textual authorities as Boethius and Seneca. Curious. Then, most curious of all, she offers him a choice. She can remain old and ugly, but she will be a true and loyal wife. Or she can become young and beautiful but he will always be suspicious of her. He says, you ready for it? Quote, you make the choice yourself. Whatever pleases you suffices me. And so she has won the mastery. She has gained her sovereignty. As a reward, she promises him that she will be both hot and sexy and loyal and true. We have a winner Allison concludes her happy ending by saying, quote, So they lived ever after to the end in perfect bliss. And may Christ Jesus send us husbands meek and young and fresh in bed, and grace to overbid them when we wed. And, Jesu, hear my prayer, cut short the lives of those who won't be governed by their wives. Okay, those six lines are so confusing. She prays that women always get submissive studs for husbands and that those who don't knuckle under should die an early death. But how does this satisfactorily sum up the tale or the prologue that preceded it? Here's my problem. In her prologue, the wife seems to challenge patriarchal bigotry and violence, calling out, you know, St. Paul and St. Jerome. And then she tells this story that seems to long for a time before folks like Paul and Jerome spoiled the natural world and its justice. But that tale takes its focus off the justice. What happens to the girl who was raped? Anyone know? Anyone care? And instead, it focuses its energy on the reclamation of the night, a reclamation completely facilitated by women. The queen offers the rapist a way out, the old crone gives him the solution, and at the end, a sexual brute gets everything he wants. How do we square this? Many argue that Allison is some kind of proto-feminist champion, challenging the chauvinistic mores of late medieval culture, a culture that roots its power in the authority of the written word. But others argue that she is the embodiment of patriarchal nightmares, She's the epitome of the grasping, conniving, libidinous, greedy, shrew, ancient authorities have always described. I'm not sure it should be squared. Allison is not a polemical vehicle, a mouthpiece for some sociopolitical perspective. 
Like the pardoner, she is irreducible. Maybe it helps, and perhaps this is unscholarly, to think of her as an actual woman, a real person. She married at 12, the youngest canonical age possible, and so has known no life other than that of wifehood. Being bright, she understands the disadvantages of women in her time, but she sees ways to exploit them, and she does so, appropriating male biases and weaponizing them, making herself quite wealthy. But despite such ruthless strategizing, somewhere inside she still longs for love. You know, once she has secured herself in a masculine world, she can afford to marry for love. Unfortunately, Johnny is a violent abuser, maiming her for life. And yet, she still loves him. She is both literally and figuratively beaten by books. Not only Johnny's physical violence, but by the misogynistic violence of patriarchal texts of the kind that she challenges in the prologue. But is the romance, the fairy tale, too, a subtler kind of violence? The impossible promise of a non-existent world? Allison is so disturbingly reminiscent of the stories domestic abuse victims tell even today. How they love their abusers, how it's not really as bad as it seems, how they maybe even deserve it. This internalization of sexual violence is so heartbreaking. And so heartbreakingly common. Look at Allison's tale. It's a romance in which the knight and the lady live happily ever after. Is there something of the little girl still inside the world-wise and canny wife of Bath? Despite her experience of the woe that is in marriage, does she still nurse a wistful, nostalgic longing for true love as imagined in the fairy tales? Is that why she's traveling to Canterbury? Quote, Welcome the sixth husband whenever he appears, she says early in the prologue. She's still looking. Does she speak the pillow talk through the old crone not only as admonition, but as pleading? I think Chaucer has created quite a startlingly complex psychology here. It's Shakespearean. But of course, as we puzzle through an interpretation of that psychology, we must be aware that it is, in fact, Chaucer's creation. The projection of a male understanding of female experience. And I should add, by way of disclosure, that Chaucer himself had been charged in 1380 with raping one Cecily Champagne, the daughter of a London baker. The key word in the charge, the Latin raptus, has a somewhat ambiguous English meaning. It could mean sexual assault, or it could mean abduction. And abduction is not necessarily synonymous with kidnapping here. Very recently, some evidence has turned up which suggests that Chaucer took the young woman into his household as a servant when she was bound to another household. So he's like poaching an employee. And that action counted legally as abduction. But at any rate, this detail should be taken into consideration when we're contemplating the motives and desires of Chaucer's most famous character, Alison, who is herself a victim of sexual violence. Uh, yikes, that feels a rather grim way to end an episode. 
think of something splendid and delightful. Fairies dancing in a ring. They exist if you believe they do, right, Tinkerbell? No, 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 no. Look, on second thought, I think it's better we leave on an unsettling note. I think maybe we need to consider the grimness lurking behind this apparently comedic woman and this apparently romantic tale. Thanks for listening to the Classic English Literature Podcast. A special thanks to Bernd in Germany. I'm really grateful for the kind and encouraging thoughts. Keep spreading the word. Please take a moment to subscribe and rate the show on your favorite app. Please feel free to drop me an email with your thoughts, classicenglishliterature, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Enjoy the next few weeks, and you'll hear from me soon. Take it easy.